But because their repentance is grounded upon a fear of God's wrath primarily and not an embracing of Christ, their repentance is sending them to hell. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part four of Prepare the Way of the Lord from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor's text is found in Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, where John the Baptist rebuked the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious establishment of the day. They apparently had come to where he was baptizing with ulterior motives. Now, why does John the Baptist rebuke these religious men as a brood of vipers rather than welcome them to be baptized just as they were? And what can John the Baptist's attitude toward these religious men teach us? Was he being disrespectful or was it about true repentance? Questions to consider as we hear part four of Prepare the Way of the Lord. Last week, we moved on from Matthew's prologue into the body of the gospel, and we began not with Jesus himself, but rather with John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a forerunner to Jesus. He came to point the way to the Messiah. He was not the Messiah. And as you'll remember, he began his ministry with a sermon calling for repentance. The first words ever recorded of John the Baptist in Matthew's gospel Repent, verse 2, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that is ever so important to keep in mind as we move on into the rest of the gospel and we see the offer of salvation that Jesus brings. Part and parcel of the gospel message is the need to turn away from your sin. Don't ever lose sight of that demand that God places on you. Don't ever believe that Jesus is okay with your sin. He's not. You have to turn from your sin to Christ. Later on in the New Testament, Paul writes to the Thessalonians, and he sums this up perhaps most succinctly as we find it anywhere in the Scriptures, as he says to them, you turn from your idols toward the living God. In one verse, Paul encapsulates the theology that we will see all the way through the Gospel, Beginning with John the Baptist, you must repent of your sin. It's a twofold action, turning away from that which dishonors the Lord toward his kingdom and most importantly, the king. How do you do this? It is not of your own strength. We considered last week how it is John uses the prophet Isaiah, why he draws from that message that was preached so many years prior to him. And we saw that through that reference, he sets forth Jesus as God. This man, this Messiah is in fact God in the flesh. And it is by beholding him that you find the grace to turn from your sin. It is only by beholding Christ as God that you can let go of your sin. You do not have the strength to let go of your sin. You are in love with your sin. 
Apart from any work of the gospel in your heart, you cling tightly to your sin. You have fond affection for your sin. And so the call to repentance has to begin with a beholding of Christ as God. And therein begins the work of the gospel in your heart such that you can truly and permanently turn away from that which dishonors the Lord and turn toward Jesus and the coming kingdom. So we considered that last week and we thought through the necessity of repentance as part of the gospel message. This week, John's ministry continues. We're not yet at the point of seeing Jesus, at least not in the flesh. He's, he's near, but he's not yet in our text. This week, we consider John's ministry to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's a confrontational ministry. They appear coming for this baptism of repentance and he confronts them and he shows the false nature of their repentance. It wasn't that there was no repentance on their part, but rather their repentance was not biblical. It was not the repentance for which John was calling. And so in this interaction, in this confrontation, what John does is he starts to give them what I've labeled portraits of judgment. John gives them specifically three portraits of judgment. He shows them the false nature of their repentance, and upon that, he says judgment is coming your way and teaches them about the coming judgment. Now, an interesting feature of the text that we can point out right now is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, verse 11, are nowhere else in any of the other Gospels paired together. It's an interesting feature of the text. Only here, in all four Gospels, are the Pharisees and the Sadducees brought together. And I'll explain this morning what were their particular belief systems, and we'll see that they were entirely different. They had nothing in common as it relates to their religious beliefs. So it is somewhat strange that Matthew would bring them together, would group them together. But I think therein lies a point that we must heed, that this this confrontation is not founded upon anything that is distinctly Pharisaical or of the Sadducees. The confrontation that we'll read about this morning is not founded in a particular belief that was held by the Pharisees or the Sadducees, but rather it was a human heart issue. By bringing these two distinct groups together and teaching them about the false nature of their repentance and the judgment that will ensue, John the Baptist is probing the inner workings of their hearts. And he is showing us an issue that relates to everybody apart from the truth of the gospel. This is true of you and me if we don't embrace Christ. The failings of these two groups that we will see this morning are also prone to be our failings. And so the text instructs us concerning the true nature of repentance. My prayer as we work through these portraits of judgment is that we would understand not just the necessity of repentance, but its manner, what it is supposed to look like, and that we would be found by God's grace to be repenting in the way in which the Bible instructs us to repent. 
So thinking then about the first portrait of judgment and what it teaches us about repentance. Verse 7 and 8, Matthew says, When he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This first picture that John gives teaches us that repentance, which does not bear fruit, will bring judgment. That's the lesson from his his first interaction. Repentance that does not bear fruit brings judgment. So John sees these groups coming to him as he's baptizing many, and seemingly they are presenting themselves as ready for that baptism. The Pharisees, as you probably know, were very, very zealous to uphold the law. So zealous were they to uphold God's law that they had created many, many other supplementary laws. So they had a whole system of laws that they believed in in keeping them would allow them to uphold the biblical law. So demanding were their supplementary laws that most people would shrug their shoulders and say, I cannot possibly keep up with these guys and so what happened over time as people found their system to be overly burdensome what happened over time is that the pharisees became a group that were entirely set apart no one could get near them in terms of righteous living and they prided themselves in this they liked the fact that they were set apart and living in a more upright manner than seemingly anyone else of that time The Sadducees, by contrast, were much more religiously liberal. They did not uphold such a a high standard. They certainly sought to keep the law, but not in the same way as the Pharisees. And at the same time, they seemed to have a, a political interest, an interest in political things, so much so that they had actually gained some degree of favor with the Roman government. This actually angered the Pharisees. They didn't like the Sadducees in the way that they saw them to be compromising. And so again, you see these two groups don't go hand in hand. They're not buddies. They're not seeing eye to eye on certain things. The point of commonality would be that neither group had any interest in the Christ. Neither group had any real interest in the Messiah that John was proclaiming. They came to John ready for the baptism, understanding themselves to have done already whatever was necessary to be accepted by God. They came saying, we have repented in a sufficient manner, therefore we can now receive this baptism readily. And John greets them with a warm greeting. Can you imagine? Good morning, pastor. So great to see you. You're a snake, (laughs) is what John says. This is a bold confrontation from John the Baptist. And then he says, he perhaps explains himself, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John is being somewhat sarcastic here. He is prizing open their hearts and showing them why it was that their repentance was insufficient, 
why their repentance didn't align with the message that he had preached, and they were not ready to receive his baptism. And simply stated, the reason is because their repentance is grounded upon a fear from the wrath to come. So just think about the message that John preached last week, verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was John's motive for repentance. Look toward what is coming your way. And on that basis, the coming kingdom, on that basis, turn from your sin. This is subtly different. John confronts them and says, your repentance is based upon a desire to escape God's wrath. It actually has got nothing to do with an embracing of the coming kingdom. And for that reason, he calls them a brood of vipers. And then John says something very, very interesting. He commands them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, why would it be that their, their faulty repentance, their fleeing from God's wrath, is somehow addressed by the command to bear fruit? How does verse 8 marry with verse 7? Theologically, if we can just open this up, we start to understand why a faulty repentance would bear no fruit. Consider John's message in verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you were to change your thoughts about your sin based upon a kingdom that is coming, if you were to turn away from your sin and start to walk in a different direction based upon something altogether glorious that is headed your way, it would make sense that from then on, for the rest of your life, as you await for this coming kingdom, you are continually striving to align yourself with its ethic. You can see the kingdom coming. You have put faith in the fact that this king is on his way and he is the, the kingdom bringer. And based upon its coming, you keep saying, I want to just get rid of everything that doesn't align with the kingdom. I want to shed myself of everything that dishonors the king. So you can see in verse 2, the manner of repentance that is brought about by a beholding of the king and a beholding of his kingdom is one naturally that will start to show itself in bearing much fruit, a continuous turning away from sin. Much good works being produced in this person's life because they are waiting for the arrival of the king. And they want to make sure that when he comes, they are found to be in line with what he teaches and what he commands and what he himself is like. That's biblical repentance. If by contrast, your repentance is one that simply is trying to get away from the wrath that is to come. As soon as you understand yourself to have done that, in your mind, the job is now done. However it is that you've construed in your heart and your mind that you need to get away from that wrath, whatever arbitrary standard you've created, as soon as you've done it, you've done it. 
You've turned away from the wrath. You understand yourself to now be exempt from God's judgment. And therefore, for the rest of your life, you're just happy, peaceful, not worrying about anything. So what does that look like over time? It looks like no fruit. There is no fruit coming from your life. You're not repenting continuously, striving for the coming of the kingdom. This is one of the most dangerous and yet most subtle forms of repentance. This is one of the most dangerous and at the same time most subtle forms of repentance. And here's why. One of our points last week was that John the Baptist was the forerunner. He wasn't the main thing. He's simply here to point the way to Jesus. And I think part of what Matthew is doing, presenting him as he does, is warning us, don't latch on to him as the object of your faith. Ensure that John serves his proper purpose in your life, i.e. as a forerunner, as a pointer towards Christ. We thought about that last week, and one of the things we said is just how easy it is to allow your repentance to be grounded in things other than Jesus. Don't let your repentance be grounded in your acceptance at church. That cannot be the grounds of your repentance. Don't let your repentance be grounded in someone that you like the look of. I just want to be with this girl and therefore I'm going to repent. It's not biblical repentance. In a sense, we see the same thing here. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are repenting based upon something other than Jesus. But this is so much more dangerous and subtle because the thing that is prompting their repentance, is an eternal truth. They're not repenting based on something that is temporary, fleeting. They are repenting based upon an eternal reality, namely the wrath that is to come. And so it looks like, on the face of it, a very eternally orientated life. The person that repents based upon God's coming wrath looks, on the face of it, very much like a true born-again Christian. They are happy to sing of eternal realities. They are happy to be around eternally-minded people. You may even hear them speak in fellowship of eternally weighty things. But because their repentance is grounded upon a fear of God's wrath primarily and not an embracing of Christ, their repentance is sending them to hell. It is the most dangerous and yet most subtle form of repentance. And I think in part, at least, that is why John labels them as snakes. You crafty deceitful, wicked creatures. The repentance that you are selling to other people is one that will damn them eternally. And yet on the face of it, it has such a meaningful substance to it. It looks so wonderful 
Because it is a repentance that begins by speaking about not fleeting realities, but eternal realities. So you understand why John was so mad at these men and why his exhortation was to bear fruit. Now, with that being said, we have to remember that the antidote to such faulty repentance is not simply to strive and to work and to make sure that we are doing something in line with the commands of Scripture. That's not going to get you into God's position of acceptedness any more than these false Pharisees and Sadducees were. But rather, you have to keep the original exhortation in view such that fruit would issue readily from your life. Repent because there is something glorious on the horizon. That is the foundation of your repentance. Repent because you are enamored with Christ. Repent because you have set your gaze upon this king and found him to be worthy. Repent because you see in Jesus someone who has made a payment for your sin. And you see in his kingdom something that is glorious, altogether other from this world. And on that basis, start to strive to honor him. Not apart from it, but always, only, ever with him as your foundation. You see, the Bible teaches that on the last day, we will be judged according to our works. Romans chapter 2, verse 6. God will give all according to his deeds. He will judge us for our works. Not that our works save us, but that our works are a clear indication of where our faith has been placed. And so the exhortation is to behold Jesus and by God's grace find him to be worthy of repentance. You find him to be altogether worthy of saying no to anything that dishonors him. And when you keep before you Jesus and his kingdom, then there will be a ready issuing of fruit in your life. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. In his message today, Pastor Paul urges us to consider what constitutes true repentance. He echoes the stark warning of John the Baptist, reminding us that repentance, motivated only by a desire to avoid the wrath to come, is not true repentance. John the Baptist teaches us that a repentance, motivated by self-preservation, is not the same as repentance, motivated by a desire to embrace Christ and to bear fruit for His glory. John the Baptist warns that true repentance must include a heart's desire to bear fruit for Christ because he is a worthy king and because his kingdom is close at hand. John the Baptist proclaims that a repentance that does not bear fruit is not true and leads to judgment. The motivation of the heart makes all the difference. And Pastor Paul encourages us to ensure that our repentance is bearing fruit for the glory of Christ. 
he teaches us that such true repentance must begin by beholding Christ as God, so that the power of God may work in our heart to create new desires. And only by the power of God can we truly and permanently turn away from our sins and toward Jesus and his coming kingdom. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If this program has a positive impact on your walk with Jesus, will you consider making a financial gift to this outreach ministry? You'll be part of what God is doing to reach thousands of souls with the good news of Jesus. To make your gift of any amount, go to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org, and select Donate. Thank you for your consideration. I hope you'll join us tomorrow as we continue in our series with part five of Prepare the Way of the Lord. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.